Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. There are many ways to study the scripture, and undoubtedly, each one of them has its own individual merit. Having said that, one of our favorite approaches to this sacred text is to look at the connections that divine inspiration weaves through the law, prophets, and the writings. Many teachers favor breaking elements of the Holy Writ into smaller components. Their feeling is that these individual facets can be outlined, easily digested, and then hopefully grasped as a story. We, however, favor looking at the narrative holistically. We prefer not to segment it so that we can appreciate the unified themes that the Holy Spirit empowered men that were writing from different locations and at different times to illustrate. This continuous approach to the text, well, it allows us to see the Lord's heart displayed in the larger picture that is being painted. It also allows us to identify repeating patterns in the text that turn out to serve us prophetically. They hint at the redemptive history in the story and based on the past, what might be forecasted in our future. They are redemptive cycles that we're identifying. And it's important that we hear them tonight because Stephen's sermon is based on it. So tonight, you will see that Stephen favored the same approach to scripture. We will highlight a redemptive cycle and pattern that Stephen skillfully illustrates while standing before the most learned and preeminent leaders of his time. Those of you who are, who are the most diligent and astute students will notice that we've been hinting at this theme since our introduction in the book of Acts. <coughs> Furthermore, many of the topics that have been introduced that at first glance may have appeared to you as superfluous mm. will come together in comprehensive fashion. Amen. Stephen proves the thesis that the book of Acts is the record of Jesus' deeds <coughs> and teachings accomplished through his body on earth after the ascension. Moreover, Stephen could be considered as the crowning attestation to this thesis. You guys ready to get into our first slide of review together? Yes. yes. Here it is, the kingdom of God, our first slide of the Hallelujah. evening. You guys will remember that Acts begins, starting in verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Acts also ends in a similar manner in verse 28, starting in verse 30. Chapter 28, starting in verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts begins and ends with statements about the kingdom of God on the earth. Yeah. Acts chapter 1 renews the promise that the kingdom will be possessed by Israel. The chapter also illustrates the recognition of 12 special men that had the foundational task of governing the kingdom on earth. Those apostles were chosen by the Lord and by the lot. This followed the biblical pattern of the assignment of Israel's inheritance outlined in the book of Joshua. <laughs> Additionally, the first chapter of Acts outlines the mission 
to expand the Messianic kingdom from Jerusalem to Judea in the south and Samaria in the north, hear this word, simultaneously. The mission is for the kingdom centered in Jerusalem to radiate outward from Israel to the ends of the earth. This expansion would not be a neat linear progression like we often like to think about it, but rather like a bomb centered in Jerusalem, which explodes and whose effects would be felt all over the known world. In Acts 2, the biblical narrative features the newly formed government of the kingdom being validated from heaven by fire. This, you're familiar with these slides. Moses, in Exodus 19, is validated as the Lord descends on Mount by fire. The priesthood in Leviticus 9 is validated as fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. The prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18 is validated as fire from the Lord falls and burns up the sacrifice. King Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7 is validated as fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. And the new government of the apostles is validated by fire as tongues of fire separate and come to, re to rest on each of them. This slide has been repetitive intentionally. It is really important to understand that the Pentecost event fits the pattern of heavenly fire validating the work of God. Prior to Acts 2, these events were fire falling on a singular mountain or a singular altar. In this case, the fire fell on 12 men, oh, indicating yeah. that each of them were personally like temples of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. This imagery is profound and sets up an underlying theme in the first seven chapters of Acts that display the tale <laughs> of two kinds of temples. Both of these temples are designed and implemented by God, but only one of them is acting in accordance with His will. This was a strong indicator that the prediction of Jesus was taking place. This slide will remind you of the prophecy from the Gospel in our slide entitled, Kingdom Taken. Matthew 21, 43 says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. This statement was made to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Where most present-day believers get confused is in thinking that this statement refers to taking the kingdom from Israel. That idea is patently false and unbiblical. The custodians of the way to the kingdom were being changed from present Jewish leadership to new Jewish leadership, i.e. the Jewish apostles. Now Acts 2 is a fulfillment of the kingdom being taken away from the present temple complex and its corrupted leaders and being given to a new kind of temple complex and its incorruptible leaders. Amen. Yeah. Jesus also prophesied this in the Gospel of Luke. So you should remember our slide, Kingdom Transferred, from Luke 22, 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the chapters 3 and 4 of Acts moved us into a growing conflict between the rejected leaders of Israel and the new leaders of Israel. It's important to understand that the deeds and teachings of Jesus, as well as the community that forms his body, are completely consistent with the Tanakh itself. The new leadership of Israel does not represent a departure from the original mission of Israel. Amen. 
but rather a renewing of the original purpose for Israel. Amen. This slide refers to a pattern that the deeds of the apostles were fulfilling, and it comes from Isaiah and demonstrates fulfillment of the Tanakh rather than abrogation of it. The slide is called Walking the Way in Isaiah 35. You've seen it several times before, but it's important to understand for the sake of continuity. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer. And the mute tongue shout for joy. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. The deeds of Jesus and the deeds of the community that represent his body are the very things the Tanakh prophesied in advance. Acts 3 and 4 demonstrate that the apostles are the rightful leaders of the way that the kingdom would come to the earth. The chapters also reveal the wickedness of the foolish men that still believe they are in charge of God's nation. It is not only the deeds of the apostles that are in line with the pattern laid out in the Tanakh. Every teaching recorded is also a continuation of the teaching originally laid out in the Tanakh. So let's look at how the pulpit commentary says this on Acts 3.13. The continuity of the New Testament with the Old Testament stands out remarkably in Peter's address. He speaks to the men of Israel, and he connects the present miracle with all that God had done to their fathers in days gone by. He does not seem conscious of any break or transition or of any change of posture or position, only a new incident long since promised by the prophets has been added. He thrusts himself upon the fathers of old, lest he should appear to be introducing a new doctrine. So the early believing community was not a departure from Israel's purpose or mission, but rather a renewing and continuation of the purpose for the nation. Everything the apostles did or said was in perfect alignment with what the law, the prophets, and the writings had declared in advance. What had become known as Christianity is originally (laughs) represented in the Newer Testament as Jewish men following the way described by the patriarchs before them. The term ecclesia, or church, had always referred to Israelites being called out of the corrupt nation. As we move into Acts 5, Ecclesia will now refer to Israelites being called out of the corruption of their own nation caused by its leaders. The church was initially completely ethnically Jewish and renewed the original mandate and purpose of Israel. The unrepentant were removed and the faithful carried the light of the Tanakh's revelation with them. This started in Jerusalem and would eventually incorporate other nationalities into the destiny of true Israel. So in Acts 5 and 6, 
they represent the church growing rapidly and built to the climatic event that we will read about Stephen tonight. The battle royale had been confined in chapter 5 to the apostles versus the Sanhedrin, but in chapter 6 and 7, it will now spill over into the members, into other members of both groups. Acts 5 and 6 are probably still fresh in your mind, so rather than review slides from those sessions, we just want to remind you of a few things. One, starting with the fact that both communities in the tale of two temples had problems. However, it is the son that is disciplined and correctable that is actually the legitimate son. So let's take Hebrews 12, picking up in 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the, that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Amen. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Amen. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? The events of Acts 5 and 6 display the followers of the way receiving discipline that purifies the community. The same cannot be said for those for the corrupted leaders of the existing temple complex. Everybody involved on both sides of the struggle is Israeli. But the Jews who are receiving discipline and instruction are the ones that show themselves to be sons of Adonai. Amen. Israel is God's firstborn nation, yes. and that will never change. Oh, yeah. There's a pattern in Israel's history that displays even true sons going through initial disobedience, but ultimately becoming obedient precisely because they are Adonai's firstborn. Remember this passage from last week. Matthew 21, 28-32. says, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first. The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. Wow. So these statements by Jesus remind you that the family of Israel consisted of two kinds of sons. The firstborn son is the one that although initially was disobedient, oh, come on. eventually does the will of the Father. Yeah. Yeah. The second son could only be called stiff-necked and is in danger of being cut off from the destiny prophesied to the family of Israel. So years of preaching about this being Jews and Gentiles is erroneous and false. Right. The two sons are within the same family, and the one that is legitimate is the one that is corrected and does God's will. Come on. 
Now that you're well positioned to engage with our text tonight, let's look at an egregious error that many have made through the centuries in evaluating the sermon that Stephen will preach in Acts chapter 7. This kind of error is the result of failing to understand the scripture as a unified work. This kind of mistake comes from a myopic view of the chapter that severs the Newer Testament from the contiguous themes demonstrated in the Bible all the way from Genesis through Revelation. The slide is an example of the deficit in comprehension that can result from segmenting the Word of God into dispensations or otherwise impeding yourself through favoring some facet of the narrative over another facet of the inspired text. Let's look at the example from one commentator that illustrates a significant error. So, on missing the point, Debellius has argued the irrelevance of most of Stephen's speech has for long been the real problem of exegesis. It is indeed impossible to find a connection between the account of the history of Israel to the time of Moses in 7.2-19 and the accusation against Stephen. Nor is any accusation against the Jews, which would furnish the historical foundation for the attack at the end of the speech, found at all in this section. Even in that section of the speech, which deals with Moses, the speaker does not defend himself, nor does he make any positive countercharge against his enemies. For the words in Greek, hoi de oi, Sinecon in 725 do not constitute such an attack any more than does the report of the gainsaying of Moses by a Jew in 727. It is not until 735 that we sense any polemic interest. Wow. From 72 to 34, the point of the speech is not obvious at all. We are simply given an account of the history of Israel. Debellius adds such statements as the following. The major part of the speech in 7.2 through 34 shows no purpose whatsoever. That's a celebrated theologian in a published commentary. (laughs) So in light of that, as we prepare to pray and get into our chapter tonight, let us state boldly that Stephen is the crowning example of our thesis that acts as the record of the body of Christ continuing in the deeds and teachings of Jesus after the ascension. Additionally, let us assert in confidence that the point of Stephen's sermon is both profound and intricately connected to the unified theme of the Tanakh and of the Bible as a whole. The reason that commentators like Debellius misunderstand Stephen's sermon is that they suffer from inversion. These kind of men tend to start in the Newer Testament, which is the last part of a 4,000-year-old narrative, and then they approach the Older Testament. This is quite literally like looking through a telescope through the wrong end or lens. Proper understanding comes clearly into focus when the biblical story is viewed from the vantage point that it was presented And in the order that it was presented. The Tanakh is the foundation of all that would come after it. And the Newer Testament is the pinnacle of the narrative that rests on the foundation of the Tanakh. So today, we're going to revive an older practice. 
Yeah. And pray in accordance with Psalms 119, verse 18. Oh, yes, Lord. It says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes, Lord. Yes. This will position us to understand the beauty of Stephen's sermon and that the redemptive cycle that the Bible clearly portrays when viewed as a singular story from beginning to end. We want to warn you that a revelation is coming. Yes. That is similar to what we experienced in Numbers 25, if you might remember, with Moses and the Balaam incident. We had serious difficulty in assigning any error to Moses. But when we understood what the text clearly indicated, then we were able to be benefited by a new revelation. Tonight's text will require the same kind of brave and honest assessment of what is actually written. By the end of the evening, you will see that there is a consistent repeating redemptive pattern in the biblical narrative that always involves initial disobedience followed by ultimate obedience yeah. in the sovereignty of Adonai. So as we get into this very relevant and inspiring sermon, I want to pray. Yeah. I want you to pray with me yes. and then Miss Jen will read the chapter. Lift yeah. your hands as we pray. Mighty yeah. God, open our eyes Lord, that we might learn from your word. Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his 
whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his father, he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. At the time, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take, your sand, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the word. Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea. And for 40 years in the desert, this is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he rejected I'm sorry, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephaim, the idols you made to worship. 
Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took, took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophets say. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but not have obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I, have, I see heaven open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witness laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So as we get into the chapter tonight, <coughs> commit yourself to the position of staying engaged from start to finish. If you're with us, someone shout amen. Look at our slide. You'll remember this from the last couple weeks. 
Right there in the middle, the man who's colored in black there, is where he would be standing as the accused. And Paul is likely sitting to the right of the slide in the student seating. So guys, while you're thinking about this, and you're looking at the slide, remember, Stephen's face is shining like an angel. Yeah. Or like Moses' face had shown when he received the law. Yeah. And they're surrounding him and watching him. This next slide should come back to memory. Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. It may be worth noting that the most famous example in Scripture of someone with a shining face is Moses. Yeah. See that in Exodus 34. But the comment by Wall that this shows that Stephen, rather than the Sanhedrin, is the authorized interpreter of Moses. So this would mean that Stephen's discourse before the most learned men in all of Israel begins with educating them about the call of Abraham. Remember, it was Moses who first wrote about the call of Abraham in Genesis. And Stephen's face is now glowing like Moses. The Sanhedrin is about to be confronted with the uncomfortable fact that Abraham was initially disobedient to the call of God, which Stephen says occurred before. Somebody say before. Before. Before Abraham lived in Haran. This assertion is only slightly less unpopular today as it would have been then, meaning the first century. So let's review Genesis together to gain Stephen's perspective. Y'all ready? Yeah. 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 In Genesis 11, starting in verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren and had no children. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Genesis 11 begins with the story of the rebellion in the plain of Shinar and the Tower of Babel. Then the text moves to the generations of Shem in order for you to understand the character that Moses would introduce to us as Abraham, and we would learn, I'm sorry, Abram, and we would learn to call Abraham. The genealogical record includes records all the way up to the death of Terah, who is Abraham's father. This is not a trivial detail. Right. So the genealogical record indicates that it was Terah who took Abram and the family on a journey towards Canaan. But that they settled for an undisclosed time period in Haran. Meaning that the family was on the way to Canaan, but stopped. They stumbled and settled in Haran. Stephen tells you that Abraham received the call 
before the family got to Haran. So let's read that again. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before. Say before. Before. Before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Guys, this would mean that Abraham received his calling from Adonai in Ur of the Chaldeans, but did not initially leave his country or his people and go to the land Adonai would show him until after the death of his father. Stephen's point is that Abraham was initially disobedient and only became obedient after the death of his father. This is not something that the Sanhedrin wanted to hear. And it is not something that we, who love Abraham, want to hear either. But it is what Stephen is implying. The controversy ensues because of tendency to read chapters of Genesis as if they were written in perfect, linear, sequential, and chronological precision. This is not the case. And it is not the case with any good literary work. Authors often give you details, and then they back up to give you the series of events. Additionally, they foreshadow and also give allusions to details that are coming in the story. So... Let's look at a few major translations and consider this misunderstanding. You guys rest assured tonight that we will not be relying on ambiguous verb tensing or grammatical arguments. The Word of God actually settles this issue. Amen! The Word of God settles it. Through direct quotes from Adonai and the interpretation given in the Word by Stephen, remember as his face is shining like Moses. That's pretty compelling. So let's start with this slide. The timing of the statement. Looking at various translations, in the ESV, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The net, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your relatives and your father's household to the land that I will show you. The Young's literal translation said, And Jehovah said to Abram, Go for thyself from the land, thy land, and from thy kindred, and from thy house, the house of thy father, unto the land which I will shew thee. Alright. It's complicated as it was. So clearly we see these translations appear to show Adonai speaking to Abraham after the death of his father in Haran, that is detailed in Genesis 11. 1131-32. The superficial assumption as we're reading these in sequential order is that the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12 to go from your country and your kindred and to your father's house to the land that I will show you occurred in Haran and after the death of Terah. You're getting me? Yes, However, Stephen directly contradicts this view. Yes, he does. Stephen said the call was before the death of Terah while Abraham was still in Mesopotamia and before he moved to Haran. 
The clear implication that Stephen is asserting is that even Abraham was initially disobedient to the call of God. He stumbled, but not beyond recovery. Because he ultimately obeyed. Amen. So the question remains, however, was Stephen right? Or did Stephen misquote and misunderstand Genesis? Remember, his face is glowing like Moses while you are considering the possibilities. Let's look at another timing of the statement slide. This is Genesis 12.1 in the NIV 84. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. How about the New King James Version? Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Let's take one more from the revision of the authorized English version. Now Jehovah had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy birthplace, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee. The truth is that the literal Hebrew verb just means said. But the sentence itself does not indicate when Adonai said it. The various translations are reflections of the translator's opinions. However, Stephen tells us that this statement was made by Adonai before, before. say before, before, before Abraham went to Haran. Again, the uncomfortable part is that this would mean that Abraham did not initially leave his father's house, his country, and his birthplace until after the death of his father. Abraham was initially stumbling in disobedience, but ultimately became obedient. Good translations acknowledge this, even though they do it in the fine print. So here's another slide. All right, you ready for the fine print slide? Yeah. This is how translators admit that they may be wrong. Genesis 12, verse 1 beginning to the ESV study Bible. It says, Stephen has God calling Abraham, or Abram, before he lived in Iran. Oh, wow. The ESV footnote, or had said, shows that the grammar in Genesis 12, 1 allows for this reading. On a similar note, you'll see the NET next on Genesis 12, 1. The Lord called Abraham while he was in Ur. You can see Genesis 15, 7, Acts 7, 2, but the sequence here makes it look like oh. it was after the family left to migrate to Canaan. So even the translations that erroneously and errantly imply that Abraham received the call of God in Haran have notes that let you know the Hebrew grammar may indicate that the call occurred in Ur of the Chaldees. And Genesis 12.1 could or should be read as now the Lord had said to Abram. We don't want to rely on translation issues. Let's see how Adonai himself refers to the calling of Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. In the very same 
chapter that first mentions Abraham as being credited with righteousness, Adonai says that Abraham was brought out from Ur of the Chaldeans, not Haran. Nehemiah 9, 7-8 restates this again. The point is that both Adonai and Stephen indicate that the calling of Abraham happened before he was ever in Haran. Again, so you don't miss it. This would mean that Abraham was taken by Terah, as Genesis 11 says, and settled in Haran. This would constitute a stumbling because it is a detour or a delay of what Adonai actually said to do. Abraham's father took him towards Canaan rather than Abraham separating from his father's house, country, and people. Abraham stayed with his father's house and settled in Haran along the way. Abraham initially stumbled in disobedience, but ultimately became obedient to the call, which becomes as convicting and also hopeful as a redemptive pattern in Stephen's sermon from this point forward tonight. So we are going to need to move forward in our text. But there are various workarounds and theories that have been developed to obscure this important biblical fact. They usually involve inventing more than one calling of Abraham, one in Ur and one in Haran. We would like to point out that Stephen is referring to the only calling of Abraham recorded in the scripture. If there are two callings, then the argument would have to rely on silence. The text itself only records a singular calling of Abraham before his period of delay, deterring, or disobedience in Haran. We are aware that there are Jewish targums and discussions in the Talmud that try to work around this issue. In our view, this sharpens Stephen's point by illustrating the reluctance of the audience to grasp with the fact that Israel has a history of initial disobedience followed by ultimate obedience. This will be the underlying point that Stephen is addressing with every example that he cites in his sermon. Comprehending this truth will bring total unity and clarity to every statement that Stephen makes. Now furthermore, it would mean that every example that he chooses is intended to assert that the sovereignty of God will cause Israel to obey even though most are initially disobedient. Come on! In effect, Stephen is saying... This is how it has always been, and Adonai is going to cause Israel to obey with you or without you, Sanhedrin. Keep the pattern of initial disobedience and ultimate obedience in mind as we continue in verse 5. Do you all have the pattern? Yes. Thank you. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though, at that time, Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. And they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later... Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Tonight is going to be so much fun. Oh, it already is. It already is. 
There are a number of things that we could cover in every section of this sermon. For instance, we are well aware that there are perceived issues relating to the length of Israel's stay in Egypt. We considered teaching on that supposed biblical difficulty. However, the 400-year period is the time that Abraham's seed was ill-treated in foreign lands, and not a reference to the exact time period of their slavery in Egypt. So instead of going through that, we want to stay on the main emphasis of Stephen's actual sermon. Rather than supposed issues that have arisen through commentators that miss the point of Stephen's sermon. Stephen's major implication throughout this sermon is that Israel has a history of initial disobedience, but the sovereignty of Adonai always brings the nation into ultimate obedience. Amen. Now, if I were to count for you, saying, oh, yeah, do it. One, two, three, four, six, seven, eight. What number just popped into your mind when I did that? Absolutely. Of course, the number is five. That is because you know the sequence of numbers and you anticipate the arrival of the next number in sequence. By omitting the number five from my sequence, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, I'm actually highlighting the number to you in a very unique way. We refer to this technique as emphasis through omission. Similarly, verses five through eight begin with the prophecy from Adonai about Abraham's seed being mistreated. Then the text transitions to the birth of Isaac, and the covenant of circumcision. What event takes place between Genesis 15's prophecy and Genesis 17's covenant of circumcision? We will give you a hint. It's found in Genesis 16. <laughs> so every, every member of the Sanhedrin had this sequence of events uh, memorized. These starting with the covenant of Abraham in Genesis 15, to the promise of the birth of Isaac and the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17, completely memorized. They would have immediately noticed that Stephen omitted the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Mm. This emphasis is through omission. If you would like to study emphasis through omission, outline Mark 10 and the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus answers the question, of what must they do to inherit eternal life by quoting the 6th commandment, the 7th commandment, the 8th commandment, the ninth commandment, and then the 5th commandment. <laughs> this serve to emphasize the 10th commandment that had been omitted. Right. The 10th commandment is the one that deals with coveting possessions. Jesus used emphasis by omission to help the rich young ruler confront his true issue. Which was that he did not want to sell his possessions and give it to the poor. Yeah. Yeah. So our point going through the technique of emphasis through omission is that by Stephen mentioning the events of Genesis 15 and then the events of Genesis 17, he is subtly drawing attention to the events of Genesis 16, which is the Ishmael event. Just as Abraham had been initially disobedient to the command to leave his father's household and go to Canaan, but ultimately obeyed after the death of his father, 
Abraham initially disobeyed the will of Adonai in trying to produce an heir, that is Ishmael, but ultimately in the sovereignty of God, Abraham obeyed and produced Isaac. The reason so many people miss the implications of Stephen's sermon is that they are more settled to us than they were to the original audience. Consider this. They grew up memorizing the sequence of these events. Stephen has now illustrated two examples of the greatest patriarch initially disobeying, followed by ultimate obedience. <laughs> Come on. He's going to grow in boldness and become far more direct in this approach as the sermon continues. If the pattern is still a little fuzzy to you, that's okay, because it will become extremely clear by the middle of the sermon to everyone. Let's move from Abraham's calling, which displayed the pattern, and the events of Isaac's birth, which displayed the pattern toward Joseph, where the pattern is blatantly obvious. Y'all want to go to verse 9? Yes. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. What visit? First. On their second visit. Oh, what visit? Second. Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. One of the reasons that we all love the story of Joseph is that the details foreshadow Jesus so clearly. Ironically, Stephen is one of the first people in the biblical text to make this kind of inference. Remember, Stephen is on trial before the very same men that condemned Jesus. Caiaphas led both trials. The false charges are even the same in both accounts, both Jesus and Stephen's trial. Now consider that Stephen has moved from the initial disobedience of Abram in two instances that were followed by the ultimate obedience of Abraham in the sovereignty of God through a second opportunity. He is now illustrating Israel's history of initial disobedience followed by ultimate obedience in the story of the patriarch Joseph. Were the dreams and the calling of Joseph accepted by the family initially? No. No. But the dreams and the calling of Joseph were ultimately recognized by the family of Israel, weren't they? Yes. This is Stephen's point. To put a razor's edge on his point, he abandons all subtlety and summarizes the interactions of the family with Joseph in only two trips. On the initial trip, trip number one, the family of Israel did not recognize Joseph. But on the second trip, The family of Israel received revelation into who the ruler of Egypt actually was. Stephen is a first century believer that understands the pattern of Israel's redemption. Israel is almost always initially disobedient, but ultimately in the sovereignty of Adonai becomes obedient eventually. Of course, you know this will occur in relation to a worldwide trauma and the second advent of Jesus. So the men in the Sanhedrin 
we're not missing the implications of Stephen's sermon. But the intensity and clarity of the pattern is about to become so obvious that it moves the Sanhedrin to murderous passion. Mm. Stephen is about to illustrate the same pattern in Israel's dealing with Moses. Again, the effect of this repeating pattern constitutes something like Stephen saying, Israel has always been initially disobedient and then ultimately obedient because of the sovereignty of Adonai. But you leaders may not get to be a part of it. Or this is going to happen with you or without you. Do we have your attention? Yes. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abram bought from the sons of Moor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. We're aware there is a supposed Bible difficulty regarding the number 75 and also the purchase of the burial site. On another night, you buy us a beer maybe, we would be happy to cover it with you. Tonight, though, we want to focus on what Stephen was focused on, this pattern. If we took the time to go through those ancillary issues, well, we would probably just be showing off. That's true. And you guys would miss the point of Stephen's sermon. It is worth noting that if Stephen had made a mistake in recounting a number or the location of a burial site, the men would have immediately stopped him in order to correct the issue. Guys, this is such an important fact. They did not, that did not happen, though, because there is no mistake in Stephen's sermon. As always, the mistake is in people's understanding of the text and not with the text itself. So in light of that, let's continue towards Moses and this repeating redemptive pattern that's becoming more and more clear to us. Verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So, at first glance, verses 17 through 22 just seem to be the introduction of Moses in the sermon. Yeah. But remember, Stephen is addressing the most learned men in Israel. They already know the story from the text and have every detail memorized. Much in the same way that Stephen was subtle in the way that he introduced the pattern regarding Abraham's initial disobedience and then ultimate obedience, he starts subtly with the subject of Moses and the redemptive pattern. The point in these verses is that Moses, who is the most venerated of the savior figures in Israel was initially put out of Israel before he was obeyed by Israel. Introducing Moses in this way serves to illustrate a repeating redemptive, redemptive cycle in Israel's history that always involves initial rejection followed by ultimate obedience and acceptance. So let's continue with Stephen's sermon. 
When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit, visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. Wow! Mm. Wow! Rescue them! Or save them! But they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the others pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So Stephen's illustration is coming to a fine point. <coughs> Stephen makes the point that Moses, and I quote, thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue or save them. The first way the pattern shows up in these verses is in the personal life of Moses. He, like Abraham, started the call and then stumbled. He attempted to rescue uh, the rescue of Israel but ended up settling in Midian. This is initial disobedience in Moses' life that constituted a 40-year detour, delay, or stumbling before Moses was ultimately obedient to the call of Adonai and affected the deliverance of Israel. So you guys can see that in the life of Moses. The second way the pattern shows up in these verses is illustrated in the family of Israel. Yes. They were being presented with Adonai's savior or ruler and judge, but initially rejected Moses as the deliverer. Of course, you know the end of the story is that the family of Israel eventually became obedient to Adonai and thus Moses. This is a redemptive pattern that is cyclical in the biblical text. It is both true of the venerated leaders and the common people, and Stephen is showing you both. The people of Israel always display initial rejection before they ultimately accept and obey the will of Adonai. The underlying point of Stephen's sermon is as convicting as it is ultimately hopeful for the nation. The Sanhedrin hearing this is being challenged as to whether or not they personally will participate in Israel's ultimate obedience or be cut off from the destiny of national Israel. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear, fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Wait, wait. I will send you what? Back! This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Oh, yeah. Through the angel who had appeared to him in Okay, my friends, so let's start with Moses on a personal level. And then we will move to the more obvious pattern displayed in the people. 
Moses had initially fled in fear to Midian and abandoned the call of God to be ruler, judge, or savior of Israel. However, true to the pattern and the sovereignty of Adonai, Moses ultimately became obedient to the call and was sent back to Egypt. This is the redemptive cycle playing out in the most venerated leader in Israel's history. It should have been both convicting and hopeful to the leaders that were listening. This is the same group of men that participated in the trial of Jesus, which was, of course, initial disobedience. In this moment, they are trying Stephen on the same charges and have the opportunity to come to the place of repentance and ultimate obedience to the call of God on their lives. Now, I can see on your faces, you may think that none of them did, but you would be wrong. We know that at least one of them does. Now let's move to the pattern in the people of Israel that Stephen is pointing towards. Look carefully at Stephen's words. He says, this is the same Moses <laughs> whom they had rejected with the words who made you ruler and judge. Why does Stephen say this is the same Moses? Surely everybody present already knew that. It is precisely because Stephen is elucidating the redemptive pattern in Israel's history. Moses was initially rejected as the ruler, judge, and savior of Israel. But ultimately, because of the sovereignty of Adonai, the same Moses was accepted by the people. When discussing Joseph earlier, Stephen made the point that the family of Israel did not recognize Joseph as the Savior on the first trip. However, on the second trip, they did get the revelation of his true identity. Now, Stephen is emphasizing that Moses' identity was not understood during his first advent to the people. However, on his second advent to the people, they accepted the very same Moses. Friends, how could anyone be so obtuse as to not see the beauty of Stephen's sermon? Are we so dull as to not be able to read between the lines and discern the clear implication of Stephen's sermon? Stephen is clearly demonstrating that Jesus has been initially rejected by many in Israel, but will ultimately be accepted by all. He is doing this from the Tanakh alone. He is doing this from memory and while standing in front of the preeminent leaders of his time. So again, the key to understanding this redemptive pattern is to understand Adonai's working with his firstborn son throughout the history of the biblical narrative. Israel is that son who says, I will not go work in the vineyard. But ultimately, in the sovereignty of Adonai, always ends up obeying obeying and doing what the Father desires. This is such good news for Israel. And bad news for the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of men who have already promised to do the work of the Father, Father, but they are not doing it. If these leaders do not repent, they will be considered illegitimate sons and be removed from Israel's destiny. 
So again, we know that at least one of the men in this forum does repent yeah. and become a shining example of the redemptive cycle in Israel's history. Guys, in our next couple verses, Stephen is now going to point towards the prophet that Moses himself predicted. Are y'all getting this? Yes. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses. <laughs> this is that Moses. Messiah 
and to come into a saving acceptance, even if it took some time after their initial really rejection. Come on. Wow. So Ecclesia had normally referred to Israel being called out of the nations. However, now, Ecclesia is hinting at the need to be called out of the corruption of the nation of Israel. This is both a convicting charge to these leaders, and it is also a hopeful appeal of Philida. Consider this. Abraham and his call have been called out of his land and his people. Joseph had been called out and was a foreigner to his own people. Moses had been called out and was a foreigner to his people. The point would be that a calling out of the existing situation had to occur for Israel to be saved in every single instance of the historical narrative. The people of Israel were being called out of the existing corrupted system and into the purity of the way. So as Peyton mentioned earlier, we're going to back up and read verses 38 through 41 to regain our momentum. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. <laughs> that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. Ooh. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. Wow. Stephen is really striking at the heart of an issue here. Israel was the group of called out ones. And the presence of Adonai was among them in the desert. The law was presented to them and referred to as living words. And yet their initial reaction was in disobedience. They initially chose to worship something idolatrous while calling it the worship of Yahweh. The first generation in the desert had Adonai's presence and yet disobeyed by rejecting the living words and chose instead to implement an idolatrous form of worship while claiming to worship Yahweh. This is so striking because Israel is the nation called out in the first century as well. Israel had Adonai's presence among them in the first century as well. Israel received the living word embodied in Jesus as well. Stephen is accusing them of claiming to worship Yahweh, but really engaging in something that had become idolatrous. He even uses this phrase, held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. This undoubtedly is an insinuation that the Herodian temple had become idolatrous, even if it was still utilized under the guise of Yahweh worship. Wow. The leaders were showing too much honor for what their hands had made. The proof of this is that they are considering killing Stephen for the supposed anti-temple statements. In Stephen's sermon, he consistently displays a pattern that we have been talking about all night now. The redemptive pattern of initial rejection followed by ultimate obedience. The major emphasis in all of the examples cited up to this point, have been on the ultimate obedience. The emphasis in this case is not on the ultimate obedience. 
In fact, he doesn't even mention it. That is because he is strongly warning these men. However, we want you to know that although the first generation in the desert was initially disobedient, except for Caleb and Joshua, of course, the second generation of Israel was ultimately obedient. Every person listening already knew that. But the tone of Stephen is growing in intensity because he is pushing the Sanhedrin towards repentance from behaviors that all Israel must be called out from. Stephen is clearly inferring that these leaders must repent or they will be killed, just like that first generation that was in the desert and also replaced by Israelites who will go into the promise. Verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to, to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert? Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. So here Stephen is doing two things at once in these verses. To start, he is forecasting a continuing element of disobedience within the nation that resulted in the Babylonian captivity. The whole book of Jeremiah is warning that sons who will not obey get sifted out of Israel. Of course, when sifted, this leaves Israel with sons that are legitimate sons, like Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah. The other thing that Stephen is doing is continuing the historical narrative from the time of Moses to Joshua and Joshua to David. The reason for this is to illustrate that Israel had the tabernacle with Adonai, Adonai's presence among them throughout all this period. This is striking. This is setting up another illustration of the redemptive cycle and pattern of initial disobedience followed by ultimate obedience. The cycle relates to Adonai's dwelling place. Stephen is doing this because he just insinuated that the Herodian temple has become idolatrous to them. Who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. So David's initial desire to personally build the temple was well intended, but incorrect. Oh, wow. Uh-oh. Mm. Not David. Yes, David. Yes, David. If this were not the case, then he would not have to have been told, you are not the one to build a temple for me. However, ultimately, Israel did God's will through Solomon building the temple. Come on. David is another example of a revered leader in Israel's history that initially got it wrong and ultimately got it right because of the intervention of Adonai. Praise God. Every example that Stephen uses holds to this cyclical redemptive pattern and illustrates that both the leaders 
and the people often initially are mistaken or disobedient, but ultimately Adonai causes Israel to obey. Say amen. Amen. Just like in every other case, this continuing theme is both convicting and hopeful, depending on how it's received. Yes. With that convicting and hopeful nature in mind, listen to Brother Lipton, read verses 48 through 50. We still got you? Yes. yes. 39 more minutes. It's worth it, I promise. The best is yet to come. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So in the West, we were taught to present the major points of our discussion in advance. Then we go on. We move on to support our points through the body of our dissertation. Oh, yeah. And then finally, we summarize our points that we feel were proven through the discourse as a summary and closing. This is Greek logic. Saints, can we tell you tonight, neither Stephen nor Adonai are Greek. That's true. <laughs> Understanding the cultural forces and the methods of the Eastern people is essential to, the understand, to understanding the text. We began by citing commentators that said Stephen's sermon did not address the accusations. Commentators that said sermons, Stephen's sermon had no discernible point. Commentators that said Stephen's sermon had no basis for accusing the Sanhedrin of resisting the Holy Spirit. The reason people feel that way is that they are imposing a Greek style and format on Stephen's sermon, and that is flatly inappropriate. Stephen was accused of blasphemy against God and against Moses by the Grecian Jews in Acts 6.11. He was accused of speaking against the holy place, being the Herodian temple, by the Sanhedrin in Acts 6.13. He was accused of speaking against the law by the Sanhedrin, also in Acts 6.13. And lastly, advocating for changing the customs of Moses, once again by the Sanhedrin, in Acts 6, verse 14. So at this point in Stephen's sermon, he has decisively shown his honor of Adonai and Moses. Moreover, he has shown that Adonai and Moses were initially rejected by leaders and people alike throughout Israel's history. But ultimately, Adonai prevailed and produced obedience in his nation. At this point in Stephen's sermon, he has shown that Israel has always been blessed with a tabernacle or temple, but often was initially disobedient, even though they had a holy place. Moreover, Stephen has illustrated Adonai's ability to ultimately bring about the obedience of the people, even while they were misusing, misunderstanding, or improperly relating to the holy place. As far as advocating changes in the customs of Moses, I think we just ought to point out one more time, Stephen's face was glowing <laughs> like Moses throughout the sermon. Yeah. Moreover, the majority of Stephen's message utilizes the very words of Moses to bring both conviction and hope as Stephen illustrated the consistent redemptive pattern of Israel's initial rejection followed by the inevitable and ultimate acceptance. Amen. The last thing that we want to point out before moving on is 
While some would take this to be an indictment of Israel or a personal defense of Stephen, it would be more appropriately regarded as a faithful proclamation of Israel's ultimate outcome, yeah. whether these leaders participate or not. Right, yeah. That is his point. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 51, and we'll keep a pace so that we keep your interest. Oh, you got it. You stiff-necked people. Yeah. So little, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. So let's start by commenting on verse 51. Stephen has vividly illustrated that Israel does have a long and storied history of initial resistance to the Holy Spirit. He has also illustrated that the destiny of Israel ultimately is that they will obey the will of Adonai. The choice before the Sanhedrin is whether or not they will be part of Adonai's destiny for Israel or be cut off from it. Stephen did not invent the term stiff neck, however. He is drawing it directly from the Tanakh, and here are a few examples on a slide. Stiff-necked, but... Exodus 34, 9 says, O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us, although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Amen, although. Jeremiah 17, 23 through 25 says, Yet they did not listen or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and would not listen or respond to discipline. But if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates of the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it, then kings who sit on David's throne will come to the gates of the city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. Second Chronicles 30 verse 8 says, Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. Now, you guys just heard examples from the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Tanakh acknowledges the stiff-necked nature of Israel. And it also demonstrates Adonai's ability to bring them into obedience anyway. Amen! The term stiff-necked refers to the demonstrable tendency of Israel to initially resist the will of God. But the beauty of this is that Adonai always causes his will to come about through the nation anyway. Hallelujah. The Sanhedrin is being confronted with their own behavior, which is held in parallel with the historical behavior of the nation. The beautiful part is that the same ultimate destiny remains for the nation. Yes. However, these leaders, like the generation in the desert or the generation facing the Babylonian captivity, are in mortal danger of being cut off from Israel's divine destiny as a nation. We're going to read verses 51 through 53 one more time 
And we're going to get a sense of why we're talking about what we're talking about. Or two more times. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> as many as it takes. You stiff-necked people bring uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? Nope. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have, reject, who, have, who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Okay, so now we're going to come into verse 52. <laughs> so, Stephen has clearly displayed the initial resistance, resistance of Israel to men like Joseph and Moses. But even more pointedly, Stephen has clearly shown that these leaders are continuing to resist Moses by resisting the prophet that Moses predicted. The point is that while Israel is initially disobedient, the nation ultimately obeys. The question is whether these leaders will repent of their initial disobedience and join in the ultimate destiny of the nation or not. The import of what is being said throughout the sermon is that Adonai will have Israel's ultimate obedience. Yeah. The followers of the way, now called the church, the ecclesia, are proof of that fact. The church is 100% Israeli at this point and serves as evidence that Adonai is moving Israel towards the ultimate destiny of Israel. However, the leaders of the Sanhedrin are in serious jeopardy of being cut off from that destiny. So while this chapter is often thought of as the trial and martyrdom of Stephen, mm -hmm. it would be equally accurate to see it as Stephen putting the leaders of the Sanhedrin on trial. Yeah. Come on, somebody. Yeah. Let's read our verses again, one more time, and come to the ultimate conclusion of Stephen's sermon. You stiff-necked people, <laughs> with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your father. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now... You have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect for angels, but have not obeyed Now, when we listed the accusations against Stephen earlier, one of them was that Stephen had been accused of speaking against the law. Clearly, Stephen is innocent of this false accusation. However, the men that are supposed to be judging him by the law are guilty of breaking it themselves. Yeah, yeah. The law had been initially disobeyed by Israel, but will ultimately be obeyed by every member of Israel that is a legitimate son of Adonai. Let's look at Ezekiel 36, picking up at uh, 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Hallelujah. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you yeah. to follow my decrees yeah. and be careful to keep my law. Yes! This statement is true concerning Israel whether this particular group of leaders participates or not. This statement is true of Israel, even if Adonai uses a second captivity 
and second exodus to accomplish it. <laughs> the stiff neck and uncircumcised heart of the nation that caused initial disobedience will ultimately be overcome by Adonai and the entire remaining nation will become obedient to him. This is the repeating redemptive cycle displayed in Israel's history and in Stephen's sermon. Well, shall we move to the conclusion together? Yeah. Yes. Let's get 54 through 56, brother. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Come on. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. <laughs> Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, clearly the result of the sermon is not what we would have wanted for the Sanhedrin. Uh, yeah. However, Stephen proclaimed to them that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Guys, this is the only time in the New Testament, other than the book of Revelation, that somebody refers to Jesus in this way, other than Jesus saying it about himself. This is a clear and unmistakable reference to Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and ultimately gives the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel on earth. Stephen's dying testimony is that he is seeing the one who is the ultimate hope of all Israel. This is also among the last prophecies of Jesus when he said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds. That's Mark 14, 62. Now Stephen is confirming Jesus' claim and rebuking the council for having rejected him. It's probably best if we finish the chapter because there are some things we want to point out to you in our summary. We can pick up in 57 through 8.1. That's so good. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So we've decided to use the balance of our remaining time to focus on three things. The nation of Israel's destiny, Saul of Tarsus, who is the quintessential Israelite, that's right, and Stephen as the crowning achievement of Acts chapters 1 through 7. Let's start with the destiny of Israel. We want to read to you from Zechariah 12.10, and we'll go through 13.1. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Come on. They will look on me, Hallelujah. the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. Woo. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, 
with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. Church, the Tanakh anticipated the initial resistance of Israel to the Messiah and the workings of his body on earth. And, somebody say and. And. The Tanakh also anticipates the ultimate obedience of the nation to Messiah and Adonai. The redemptive cycle that we've been talking about all night illustrates God's ability to bring the nation into obedience. The Newer Testament carries the same promise and emphasis. In Romans 11, 13 through 16, I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection Rejection. is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. The Newer Testament acknowledges the rejection of the Messiah, but a majority of Jews, but also by a majority of Jews, but also forecasts the Jewish people's acceptance of Jesus as Messiah, which will cause the resurrection of the dead, both metaphorically for the nation and literally for all believers. Let's stay in Romans 11 for our next passage. We're going to begin in verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Israel is never redefined in the Bible to be a different people group. However, in every family, there are always two kinds of sons. And only the one that does the father's will is the legitimate firstborn son. There will be a day when the only members of Israel are the ethnic Jews who initially may have been resistant but that are now ultimately obedient to Adonai and Messiah. This is the salvation of all of Israel. The fact that Gentiles can be grafted into Israel does not affect this truth or definition of Israel in any way. We're going to keep going on verse 28 of Romans 11. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Yes. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. How about that? For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, 
they also may not receive mercy. Oh, yeah. So we, each of us, are stiff-necked Gentiles yeah. who were initially disobedient to the will of Adonai, but through Messiah, he has gained our ultimate obedience. Amen. This ought to have prepared us to understand that even if the Jews initially appear as our oppositions, they are ultimately the objects of Adonai's affection, and he will bring the nation into full obedience in Messiah. The gift of election is irrevocable, yeah. and we would all do very well to remember it. Come on. Yeah. This is the story of the Bible from Genesis 12 through Revelation. Every other detail is, is an ancillary benefit along the, pro the progression of God's plan. Yeah. So as we prepare to speak about Saul of Tarsus, we want to show you a slide based on the wording of Acts 7. That illustrates an important point about the destiny of Israel. Let's do a little Greek on our slide, pushed aside. So in Acts 7.39, it says, pushed him aside. This is the second time Moses is pushed aside in Stephen's account. This word is strong 683, apotheo. It means to push, push aside, thrust, drive, to thrust away from oneself, cast off, repel, or reject. Let's look at a couple occurrences in the book of Acts. Acts 7, 27 in the net. But the man who was unfairly hurting his neighbor pushed Moses aside. Verse 39. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him aside. And in Acts 13, 46, since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. And Romans 11, 1 through 2. So I ask, God has not rejected, pushed aside his people, has he? No. Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Stephen twice records that Israel pushed aside Moses. The inference is that Israel continually pushed aside Adonai, the deliverers, and the law. This is a painful truth, isn't it? Yeah. But notice in Romans 11, Paul directly says that Adonai has absolutely not pushed aside Israel. Paul even presents his own life as an example of Adonai's ability to cure initial disobedience and bring about ultimate obedience to Adonai in Messiah. Hallelujah. Thanks. Tune in with us. This is going to get good. We're going to briefly talk about Paul as the quintessential Israelite as an example of what will happen with all Israel. This is Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Guys, there is no question that Paul is the quintessential ethnic Jew, the Hebrew of Hebrews, and the product of the family of Israel. Now you're about to hear his own testimony about himself and his initial disobedience. 
Acts 26, verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Many. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. There is no question that Paul was initially disobedient to God's will more than any Jew that has ever been before or since. His own descriptions of his activities reveal the depth of his hostility and sinfulness of his actions. Praise God, that is not how the story of Paul ends. Amen. Nor will it be how the story of the nation of Israel ends. The redemptive cycle is that initial disobedience is followed by the supernatural manifestation of ultimate obedience. Amen. Let's read Galatians 1, 13 through 16 and listen to Paul's supernatural testimony. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul, the quintessential Israelite by birth and by example. He was initially disobedient, but because of the election of God and grace of God, he was supernaturally transformed in ultimate obedience. Come on, somebody. This revealed the power of the Messiah to transform the worst of the Jewish men into the best of the Jewish followers of the way as found in Messiah. Paul's testimony was not just for Gentiles. Galatians goes on to record the churches of Judea sharing the testimony. They said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they, the Jews, glorified God because of him. So now we're preparing to discuss Stephen and to complete this chapter. As we do, you have to be impacted by the truth that Paul may never have been transformed without seeing the example of Stephen. Paul talked about it, even late into his life. Moreover, it is profound that Paul was in the initial opposition to Stephen's example and sermon. Yet, he grew into one of the greatest proponents of the gospel the world has ever known. The seeds of Paul's Conversion were not watered from mere teachings, but rather from the blood that Stephen himself shed. Stephen, more than any other man in the New Testament, models Jesus' deeds and his teachings in near perfection. You guys ready to move on to Stephen? Yes. Remember, Stephen is the crowning achievement of Acts 1 through 6. So I'm not sure everybody's getting that. We just want you to get it. 
Stephen's name in Greek is Stephanos. It means crown. His mama named him right. So in Acts 7.55, it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This wording is deliberate and profound. The audience was well aware that in Exodus 33.18, after Moses asked, Show me your glory, Moses is unable to see Adonai's glory and live. Stephen, in this moment, sees Adonai's glory and dies. Come on, y'all. Stephen not only saw the glory of God, but he also saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This wording is, again, deliberate and profound. The audience was well aware that Genesis 28, 13 presents Adonai as standing above the ladder or gateway to heaven in the story of Jacob's ladder. Stephen saw the literal reality of what Jacob or Israel had only dreamed about, and he identified the gateway to Adonai as Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus had told the apostles that they would see heaven open, and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man in John 1, 51. Stephen is not an apostle, and yet he is the first recorded one to see heaven open in this way. In every way, Stephen serves to prove the thesis that the book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his body after his ascension. Consider these passages in parallel. Take a look at this slide. Jesus said, Stephen said. Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen said in Acts 7, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus said in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said in Acts 7, 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now we want you to consider something. Stephen is not quoting Jesus. He is speaking out of his own transformed heart that is being empowered by the spirit of holiness in his moment of trial. The statements are in a different order and they use different wording. The point is that Stephen is himself the body of Christ and not a mere imitator just parroting words. Now in every way, Stephen is the crowning achievement. Say crowning achievement. Crowning achievement. He is the crowning achievement in the first seven chapters of Acts. He shows us that the deeds and teachings of Jesus Christ are not the sole domain of the apostles, but the true inheritance of every member of the body of Yeshua. Someone shout amen. Amen. So let's close by relating Stephen to the very men that he used as examples in his amazing sermon. So interact with this. You heard Stephen's sermon, and you can see demonstrated in the way that he lays down his life. He's filled with faith, like Abraham. Come on. You can see in Stephen that he's been rejected by his ethnic 
brothers, just like Joseph was. Wow. You can see in Stephen that he sees the very heavens open like the patriarch Jacob did and like the apostles were promised. Oh, come on now. And once again, we want to remind you, Stephen's face is shining with glory, exactly like that of Moses before him. Yeah. Stephen was persecuted and killed like Yeshua, his Savior, Ooh. and every other prophet that went before him. Our final scripture for you is Romans 11, 11. We've been hinting at it since the opening lines tonight. Again I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? No. Not at all. Heaven forbid. Hell no. That's the import of that phrase. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Friends, Israel has not stumbled or fallen beyond recovery. What has happened to them is part of a larger redemptive pattern that involves their initial disobedience and finally will involve their supernatural and ultimate manifestation of obedience. When you are studying a man like Paul, who we all love, or Stephen, who exceeds Paul, they prove that this redemptive cycle will work out in the sovereignty of Adonai. You see them as Christians. You should see them as Jews. They are the quintessential Israel that serves as a shining example of the destiny of the entire nation. When we read that the root is holy, when we read that the trunk is holy and so the branches are holy, the truth is, is none of it was ever holy initially. It was made to be holy. And if God did it with these men, he will do it with their brothers. And that is good news for you. Because you too are often the son that says no and then God moves upon you to do it anyway. There is hope in Stephen's sermon for us. The German theologian writing in the 1930s was wrong. Pastors, this is your meeting. The redemptive cycle that includes initial disobedience, but ultimate obedience. First for Israel. Say first for Israel. First for Israel. So typified in one singular chapter as Stephen walks through the history of Israel. How many of you saw things that you've never even remotely thought about in that chapter tonight? Out of many, many things that they said, one thing that just caught me right here at the end is that Stephen was not just mimicking the words of Jesus. Not just echoing them back as if he had was just uh, pulled a string on the little marionette puppet and they began to speak. Stephen had become a witness. More than just trying to witness, the power of the Holy Spirit was upon Stephen 
That's where you see his selection in Acts 6. He is serving the body of Christ because of the power of the Spirit. Stephen had become the martus. He had become the witness. And he literally, as his name was indicating, he was the crowning achievement of what God is able to do somebody through the entirety of the redemptive cycle that was laid out for us tonight. I hope it's sinking in that the hope of Israel being that God's sovereignty is able to bring them from an initial disobedience to an ultimate obedience is a treasure and a crown for us to participate in. That hope, in fact, that hope that we are living in right now, when you all know those moments when your own hearts have been filled with the initial disobedience. And here and now you sit with the supernatural ultimate obedience. That hope is a fragrance. It is a fragrance that carries as a hope for those that are currently in a state of disobedience. Those that you encounter, those that you open up your life and let them see, They initially rejected. Oh, we pray that the sovereignty of God would bring them to the ultimate obedience that you have participated in. I'm going to read a very familiar passage. In fact, it was part of the closing of Sunday's message. But tonight's in-depth revelatory teaching now sheds all new light upon this passage. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Sound booth, if you can put that up. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession. What does that triumphal procession look like? A conquering king who comes in and he takes an initial disobedience and he transforms it to an ultimate obedience. And that triumphal procession in Christ is what's at work inside of us. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. We are the possessors of that hope that participate with Israel. And every action, every deed that we display is to display that hope of ultimate obedience. Let your deeds speak. Let your words substantiate them. Amen. And watch the glory of God move on the hearts of others who initially ultimately reject the name of Christ and the deeds of Christ, and we will see them resurrect just as you have. Amen. Stand to your feet. Marvin Sosa, your booming and spirit-filled voice, close us out in prayer, brother. Heavenly Father, we speak to our Make our faces shine, Father.